Blog Talk Radio.
the introduction to your political panelists and this, what's going on now, we're in the community, and then we'll talk about articles that relate to your theme tonight, methods of eliminating. They won't know. So like always, we welcome you to Africa on the Move, and if you'd like to participate, we encourage you to call in at 323-679-0841 and dial 1, and you will you will be then given the opportunity to share your views and your perspectives. So at this point in time, like always, the way we get started with our party is to first introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first will bring on Brother Haki. Welcome to Africa on the Moon, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamatamashoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness. And, of course, you know, Brother Africa, my thing is all about institution building. You know, one of the things that I find very ex- extraordinary is that, you know, often we engage in, in struggle. Often we're dealing with the symptoms and not the cause. For instance, in the, context of, in the context of America, clearly when we talk about police brutality or we talk about mass incarceration or we talk about high inform- mortality rate among African children, and clearly we're talking about symptoms, but we barely, we, rarely do we ever deal with the, the, the cause in terms of what's, what's precisely what's going on. And I always maintain that the real problem, and it's historically been the case, and will continue to be the case, is that the real problem is corporate, uh, corporate uh, control in terms of the political process. So we have in America a sort of corporate uh, coup d'etat that's, that's, in a, that's in effect. So what I thought I would do is just briefly talk a little bit about corporate history in America so to give people some, some context, some backdrop in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, power that corporations wield and the impact it has, or very, very negative impact it has on the citizenry here in America. But anyway, ch- check this out, Brother Africa. Now, how is it that corporations can create policy which undercuts both labor and civil rights? How is it that corporations can create arbitrary policy Arbitration policy, whereby the right to petition government for wrongdoing is circumvented, and the right to go to court is vetted by arbitration, which says in dispute where corporations must be settled by corporate representatives who are highly partisan. What about corporate policy that seeks to control employees' ideas by stipulating if an employee leaves for another job, any ideas from that employee that deemed to be the main of previous employer could be sued? The argument is ideas are not the exclusive domain of any individual. Ideas like people are multi-layered and textured. And the idea that thoughts can be patented in and in of itself speaks to the kind of colonization of the mind or kind of thought control uh, practiced by corporations. Now, corporate power has indeed <clears throat> increased considerably. Corporate expansion has not been achieved by chance, but a consolidated effort by corporations utilizing the legal apparatus to not only control resources, but subsequently control public policy of the entire nation. Now, in fact, uh, between the periods of <clears throat> 1868 to 1912, uh, during this period, uh, the 14th Amendment was greatly highly debated. And the 14th Amendment, for those who don't know, was all about the fact uh, in terms of defining the rights of citizenship and, and, uh, and, and rights. Now, interestingly enough now, I haven't over, overturned the Dred Scott decision. And the Dred Scott decision, of course, was the right for African people to live in free territories in the United States. The bulk of the judicial calendar dealt primarily with corporate rights. Of the 600 cases before the Supreme Court between 1868 and 1912, 300 cases dealt exclusively with corporate rights. Only 28 cases dealt with the rights of newly freed Africans. The question of economic justice, equity for Africans, would be largely determined by corporate agenda 
with the government's consent. Now, a suit of corporate control in the U.S. started in 1629 with the creation of the Massachusetts Bay Company, or MBC. MBC started as a trading company which was chartered by the English Crown. In order to facilitate business, the Massachusetts Bay Company created its own charter, justifying the slaughter of indigenous communities so as to increase profits. Pursuit of profit served as a powerful catalyst justifying both the exploitation of people, people being the indigenous Indian population and poor white people, and exploitation of the land. Even though many of the settling colonialists were appalled by the exploitation of the English elite, the propensity to exploit once again became a driving force in organizing big business and its policies. In the book, We the Corporation by Adam Weekler, the strategy for corporate expansion was laid out in the 19th century. And that strategy entailed the, the use of well-connected men to ensure the advancement of well-connected men to impact political decisions and, by extension, impact legal decisions. This strategy was particularly important because of the setbacks by big business endured while trying to implement their agenda. One such case was the complicated big business, excuse me, one such case that complemented big business agenda was the Bank of U.S. versus Doro of, of 1809. This case defined the status of corporations as a non-person, that rights of corporations would be defined by the people and not by corporate heads. This ruling compelled big business to refocus their effort, and in less than 57 years, the status of corporations was again before the Supreme Court. In 1866, before Judge Simon P. Chase, the case of Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad convened. Judge Chase ruled corporations were considered a person, and corporate, person, and corporate personhood was established. Essentially, this meant Corporations are free to pursue its interests without regard to fairness, equity, or the national interests of the country. As a result of this legal precedent, corporations were empowered to pursue property rights. And, for example, when we talk about property rights in terms of, in terms of legal precedent, for, in, for instance, when we talk about water, and we know there's a scarcity in terms of water that exists you know, in, in America as well as throughout the world. Well, corporations have priority in terms of waters that, waters that currently exist. So as a consequence, a lot of the freshwater aquifers that exist in, in the central part of the United States are probably owned by corporations and or wealthy individuals. So clearly corporations have precedent in terms of property rights, whereas we the people who need water are not entitled to the water. And that is that's a direct sort of legal precedent, legal precedent. Now the second thing is when we talk about legal precedent, we got to talk about in terms of uh, – protection for government pressure. Now, this is important because when we talk about pressure from government, government pressure, it's important that one of the big problems, that one of the biggest fears in terms of, in terms of um, capitalist society is concentrated power. And so one of the ways in which you avoid power being concentrated is you break up large companies to ensure that no company has too much, too much power. Well, corporations in particular, you know, big tech industries have been very successful in terms of bribing uh, politicians in terms of preventing antitrust legislation from going forward. As a consequence, these tech companies in particular have a tremendous amount of power. In fact, they have more power than the government. So clearly this is problematic, but it's the direct result of legal precedent. Now, thirdly, when we talk about the legal precedent, we're going to talk about speech rights. Now, one of the things in Citizens United ruling, one of the things that Citizens United said that equated speech with money, where if you equate speech with money, obviously those who have more money have more right to be to be to speak. So, so what does that mean in terms of political terms? Well, it means that corporations essentially have, with the use of the, having access to large sums of money, can essentially corrupt the whole political process. One of the things Barack, uh, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, talked about, you know, when addressing the Congress, 
he talked about the fact that Citizens United, in terms of potential, in terms of corrupting the whole political process. Of course, the Chief Justice at the time, Judge Roberts, uh, strongly disagreed. In fact, he mouthed that, that President Obama was incorrect. But of course, we understand that's an old saying that uh, money talks, everything else walks. And so clearly, we understand that if you're a corporation with access to hundreds of thousands of dollars for bribing public officials, then of course, public officials are going to listen to who? You who have the money. The masses of people who don't have access to money are, in fact, speechless. And so Citizens United is, 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 is really the coup de grace in terms of being able to create a situation where um, corporations have absolute power. And not only can they, they have absolute power, but they can corrupt. They can corrupt in a manner in which they don't even have to hide it anymore. Now they can do it right in the open. So clearly this is one of these, one of these fallbacks in terms of legal precedent in which we have to be concerned about when we talk about the power of corporations. Now let's not deceive ourselves saying corporate power will decrease simply because that is the right thing to do. Unfortunately, right and wrong does not exist in a corporate lexicon. If anything, corporate pursuit of more power is imminent. Looking at corporate, corporate lobbying expenditures to the tune of $3.5 trillion a year, $3.5 trillion a year with a T, one could easily conclude excessive spending is not because corporations are vying for less power, but they are vying for more power. This is particularly heinous because the money they use to corrupt politicians is the money provided by the Federal Reserve Bank. Money that could be used to lessen the pain of economic depression on the people is instead provided to corporations to buy back just own stocks, reward wealthy investors, and to bribe politicians. Only corporations could pull off such dastardly deeds. Now, here's the thing in terms of the African community, the one thing we've got to be very, very concerned about. As I alluded to earlier, one of the things that we talk about the symptoms, we don't talk about the cause. For instance, uh, we talk about you know, the support of corporations in terms of the Black Lives Movement. Well, it's very, very interesting where, for instance, you have, say, um, J.P. JP Morgan Bank, Redstone Bank, which uh, approves of Black Lives Matter. But when you look in terms of his policies, in terms of his refusal to allow Africans' mortgages, uh, qualified Africans, to have mortgages for homes, then it clearly that is business as usual. Nothing has changed, even though they stated is that we support Black Lives Matter. So let's not be confused in terms of the rhetoric and understand, you know, understand the reality is that uh, – Big, big corporations don't have the, necessary, the interest of African people at heart. Also, secondly, if we look at, for instance, Amazon, and Amazon also supported Black Lives Matter, but, um, um, but also when you look at black, uh, the Amazon, you look at the top echelon of the organization, there are no Africans involved whatsoever. So clearly there's a clearly disconnect between support for Black Lives Matter and the policies that are endorsed by Amazon. So clearly let us not deceive ourselves in terms of understanding this reality we have to have organizations understand the, the concrete realities that we're confronted with. Because if we don't understand the concrete realities that we're confronted with, there's no way to strategize. If we don't get it right, then the situation will become that much more problematic. So we need organizations, we need institutions to combat this systematic injustice that afflicted African people. And without those organizations and those institutions, the task will become much, much more difficult. And Brother Africa, I conclude with that. I want to thank you for having me. Right, yes, go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. Greetings to the panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong 
is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Af, for allowing me to be on the show. We're honored to have you, Brother Moses. Right now, audience, we're going to take a revolutionary culture break. When we come back, we'd like to invite you to call in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1 and share with us what's going on in your world and community. What's going on in your world and community. We can pause for this revolutionary station break, and we'll be right back. You'll listen to Africa on the Moon.
always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth, so we echo her call. And always walk tall. Because we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. That everyone can wear, that everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. Transition to what's going on in our world and the community. We have another contributor and panelist, the analyst who have just joined us, and we'd like to give him a chance to introduce himself. We now bring on Brother Anthony. Welcome, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. I'm glad to have you, Brother Anthony. Um, Panelists, analysts, as we begin to make the transition down to our segment, What's Going On in Your World Community? We'll start off with you, Brother Haki. What's going on in this, in your world, in the community? Well, you know, Brother Africa, one of the things that um, you know, I, you know, I, I find um, 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 gratifying is that often, you know, a lot of these public officials have the opportunity to engage in a Freudian slip, but they actually convene the reality of the situation in terms of what's really going on. Because one of the things that when we listen to politicians or people in positions of power, we listen to them speak, we often understand they have an agenda. And often that agenda is propagandistic in, in, in tone and style. And so, therefore, rarely do we get the truth in terms of what's really going on. And so in order to ascertain what's really going on, then we certainly have to read. That's the only way we can really get at what's really going on. But on those occasions in which they actually there's a slip of the tongue, in which they actually can convey reality, I find it very, very gratifying. And I got two examples which I find extremely gratifying. First one was uh, Peter Gaylord. He was, he's a, he's a uh, administrator for the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency back in March of 2020. Now, he said this, and I quote, as we attack the health and safety or protect the health and safety of the U.S. people, end quote. Well, when he talked about the fact attack the health and safety of the United States people, he's speaking values. One of the things, when we look at the situation as it existed in, in, in Puerto Rico in terms of the kind of uh, a devastation that was visited uh, Puerto Rico, Clearly, uh, Trump had no desire whatsoever in terms of assisting the people. In fact, their, their deaths he saw as a positive. And so, therefore, clearly, uh, you know, we understand that a lot of these, a lot of time we talk about federal management, excuse me, federal emergency management agency. A lot of times, we understand that what they do is not in the best interest of people, and that's very important to understand that. Also, one of the things is that the mere fact that Trump has been uh, reducing uh, the, the budget for the 
uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency speaks values in terms of his uh, desire to, uh, to safeguard the health and well-being of the citizens. So for Peter Gaylord to actually say that when we attack the health and safety of American people, he's speaking values. So I, I, I gladly said that. And interestingly enough, no public uh, uh, media, mainstream media has even touched that story. And I wonder why they didn't touch that story. Well, perhaps because it touched too close to home. The second, the second uh, for the slip of the tongue was Mark Expert, Eastberg. He's the Secretary of Defense. This was in July 2020. And he said this, I quote, I've said, the very, I've said that very publicly, I've said that very privately to my counterparts as well about the importance of NATO. In alliance, sharing the burden so we can all deter Russia and blah, 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 avoid peace in Europe, end quote. So what does he mean, avoid peace in Europe? Well, it's a slip of the tongue. Because clearly NATO, uh, under auspices of the United States, has no desire in terms of facilitating peace. It's not in their interest. In fact, in order for them to continue to um, rape your planet, it has to have a policy, uh, militaristic policies in place that ensure that chaos and, and, and destruction and violence continues unabated. And in the process of that continued destruction, then one of the things you don't want is politicians to actually say or to admit that they want peace. That's the word you want to stay away from. Only, only time you talk about you want peace in the sense that uh, you're trying to deceive people to believe that uh, actually the pursuit of peace is warranted. In reality, we understand when we look at NATO in terms of what it does, and we look at U.S. foreign policy, then clearly it's not about peace. And uh, in fact, if we can keep Russia, uh, Europe in and, uh, and, and chaos, then of course it's, an it's, it's, an, it's to, the, to the benefit of both the U.S. and NATO. And so therefore, anything that's going to bring about peace to be rejected. And so his slippery tongues reveals that reality. Also, one of the things that when we talk about in terms of his statement in terms of avoiding, avoiding peace in Europe, now the U.S. plans to relocate 12,000 uh, troops from Germany and place them on the border of Russia. Now, clearly, trying to provoke Russia into, into a military confrontation is certainly not a way to, to, uh, uh, to, to bring about peace. But clearly, it's not about peace. It's all about imperialist aims and objectives. And so, therefore, peace can never serve the interests of imperialism. So, therefore, imperialism is very much in demand as far as Western leaders are concerned, particularly the United States. Also, the encircling of China in terms of, you know, so as to provoke China into war. Here lately, the U.S. has been an enormous amount of time in the South, South China Sea trying to provoke China in terms of some confrontation. And clearly, again, clearly, this has something to do with peace. This is all about provoking situation where potentially we have a military com conflict, which means that lots of, I mean, millions upon millions of people are going to die if, in fact, those two powers get into a fight. But clearly, it's not a concern in terms of, as far as the is concerned, because it's all about control and domination or hegemony as the United States government sees it. When we look at, um, again, when we look at in terms of the Nazi movements in Europe, and we look at in terms of the Bank of Inter International Settlements, in terms of role it plays financing Nazis throughout Europe, they clearly it's not about, not about peace. So if you can continue, you know, prop up these Nazis in Europe and keep the perception that these Nazis are everywhere, in fact, they have a legitimate platform, then you can facilitate all kind of chaos and, and, uh, and violence. And that is precisely what they want. And so, therefore, this notion that they're all about the peace, uh, when Mike Ashford said that uh, it's all about avoiding peace in Europe, he spoke a handful. So clearly, 
uh, his tip of the tongue revealed the true inner workings in terms of the the, the uh, international military apparatus, intelligence apparatus, in terms of how it really works. So I'm glad to see that he had a tip of the tongue and revealed some reality. All right, thank you, Brother Hakeem. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Yes, um, um, a couple of things. In the U.S. and Brazil, uh, the African population has burned the brunt of COVID-19, as well as the brunt of police, police, police repression. And uh, another another commonality is that both of these are the largest settler colonies in the world. And I think the other parallel is that they were both among the last countries in the Western Hemisphere to abolish chattel slavery. So we see that the effects of enslavement have adversely uh, uh, had an effect on Africans in these two countries to this to this day. And another issue I want to bring up is that taxpayers subsidize uh, the cost, uh, the budgets of a lot of these police unions that uh, defend police that are found guilty of brutality and the murder of Africans. Uh, the unions get a lot of their funding from taxpayer money. So you so under capitalism, uh, the masses of poor and working people subsidize the, uh, their own oppression by the police. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, the situation is is very. Um, Intense, uh, shall we say, uh, that with the fascism we are facing, uh, and then on top of that, we have to contend with the cross COVID 19, and uh, we are we must be conscious. If, if we ever need to be conscious, we should be conscious today. And uh, I'm reminded of Dr. Martin Luther King. Moses, can I stop you for one second, please? Try to listen to audience. We having some kind of technical problems. In a line, they're beyond our control. We want to be patient and hope we can just work through it. But we can't control it, but we do acknowledge the, v, the, the feedback that is going on. I move forward, Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, went to jail, went to jail, and uh, he wrote a letter from Birmingham jail to the various clergy around the country, trying to get them to understand the cause which he fought for in terms of democratic rights, civil rights for for black and brown people. Now, he he. he he um, trained um, John Robert Lewis, Lewis uh, to be 
his disciples, so to speak. And um, so, you know, we see the results of that uh, as, as the funeral this this past weekend uh, showed showed that the, the, the effectiveness of this democratic struggle and uh, how effective uh, direct action uh, heightening the contradictions and confronting. Uh, turn out turn out to be a powerful weapon. Uh, so I would want to give honor to where honor is due. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Again, to our listening audience, there are some technical issues that's going on with the sound aspect of people being able to speak while interruption. We don't have control over the technologies. So the best we can do right now is to bow through it, but we will investigate it um, um, as soon as possible to make sure it doesn't happen in the future. So this is the best we can do, but it's not anything of our doing. All right, panelists, I'll go back to you, Brother Aki, in one of the issues or um, conditions that's going on, that is going on in your world community. You said something that was very interesting to me in terms of this question of uh, imperialism doesn't want to have peace in Europe, uh, how that may play out. But I think that's a fundamental issue in imperialism, period. Peace is in contradiction with Europe. in contradiction with Because when you have peace, they make less money. So can you talk a little bit more on the importance of people understanding this whole issue? particular peace movement for those who want peace and how it does not play out in the interest of imperialism, it does not play out well in the interest of the capitalists, and definitely don't play out well to those on Wall Street. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And others can shine in after this statement. Brother Hakeem. Yeah, I think yeah, one thing is that, you know, we, when we talk about, you know, peace on an international scale, then you're absolutely correct about the Africa. It's not about peace. It's about the sort of profit and control. And, of course, everything they do is all about profit and control. And certainly when you talk about hegemony, you know, in terms of the decline of hegemony, as the United States slips in terms of the ability to enforce its will, it clearly calls for a tremendous amount of desperation by those positions of power. And so the consequence that you're going to get more about in terms of maintaining what little bit of uh, control that you do have, uh, you're going to expend increasing amounts of uh, violence in terms of achieving just a little bit, a little bit of uh, a few, a little bit of benefit. Now, clearly, you know, one of the things we talk about on a national level, when we talk about peace. One of the things that when, when our politicians talk about them, we're going to pursue peace and that peace is the best interest of all in, involved. You're absolutely correct. We should never buy into that notion that peace is peace is what they're really after. But even more problematic for that. I think that when you start talking about political organizations start saying to people that uh, the only solution in terms of resolving the problems that you're confronted with is through peaceful means, then 
then clearly you have brought into the propaganda that in fact that peace can actually bring about the desired result. I maintain that the more peaceful you are, the more you further, you know, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, uh, tacitly, the more you empower those positions of power to carry out all kind of injustice and violence against the masses of people. And so therefore, this question in terms of peace is one of those things that's decided by individuals who engage in struggle in terms of how to lead themselves from the oppression that they're confronted with. And for others to try to impose in terms of their understanding in terms of, you know, how struggle should be waged, I think is fundamentally a real error in terms of the political movement. I think that's one of the real problems in terms I have personally with a lot of my uh, my, my, my brothers and sisters on the white, the, 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 the uh, left, the white left. In terms of a person to talk about peace, as though somehow if it's just peaceful, then everything's going to be all right. But clearly, when you look at the history of African people society, I mean, for over four centuries, African people have been very, very peaceful, very, very understanding in terms of the kind of oppression and monetization that they have been afflicted with. And despite this peacefulness, you know, demonstrated by African people, the kind of uh, injustice, uh, the social economic indicators in terms of the level of well-being continues to deteriorate. So clearly, uh, this notion that in fact that peace can bring about the desired results is just disingenuous. And I, I would appreciate seriously if um, brothers and sisters on the right left begin to question this nonsense and stop telling African people particularly that the only way you can bring about the desired uh, uh, results is to engage in peaceful struggle. I think that's absurd. Uh, also, I think one of the things that you know, when we talk about in terms of the pursuit of, of hegemony and we talk about mentality, it's important to understand that there's a certain mindset at play in terms of the pursuit of hegemony. In fact, one of the things, and you alluded to this, Brother Africa, one of the things that if you're talking about that, you know, uh, you know that the only thing that matters is the pursuit of dollar bills or money, if that is your position, then if, then if peace can bring about that desire, that pursuit of more wealth, then what good is it? It has it has no tangible need as far in, in terms of the mentality of, of those who seek the hegemony. So clearly these things are reality in terms of the world that we're living in. And so one of the things we can't not afford to do is to think, you know, that when, they, when our politicians tell us that they're pursuing peace by all means, to actually believe that. So it's clear we have to get to understand that when they say peace, it's simply a buzzword for a strategy in which they seek to disarm the other side by by encouraging them to be peaceful by the same token, uh, unleashing all kind of violence and mayhem against the people you know who only seek peace. So clearly, you know, we cannot fall for that trick in terms of um, peace. Anyone else would like to weigh in on this illusion of peace and its relationship to imperialism? Yes, yes. Uh, during World War, World II, War II, the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie discovered, that discovered that they could make enormous profits, profits waging war. Waging war. And, uh, and the U.S. Uh, economy the US has been in a wartime, wartime mode of production, mode of production since, that time, since period. that time period. And so, so the rich make super profits by engaging in war and trying to pit different ethnic groups against each other in order to gain profits. You know, Anthony, you said the rich war is a rich man game. They used to say that, and I think they see a practice today because we understand economically 
going to war has no incentive in relationship to improving and developing the economy. We see that most of the wealth that comes from walls are going in individual corporations and wealth the individual's pocket. It has nothing to do with the society that they live in. So that is something that people must put in their equation as they continue to right. engage right. in this battle. Excellent point. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. yeah. Now I want to add that there are all kinds of wars. There are wars. There are revolutionary wars. There are civil wars, wars of conquest, etc. So it so it depends upon the purpose. But but peace without justice, you know, leads to continual warfare. That's a good point. The struggle is for justice. Certainly, revolutionary war is not out not out of the question. Uh, the question is when is when is that time come, and uh, what do you have to do in order to build up the, the unity of the of the working class and the international movement? Um, and so it's a question of strategy and tactics all the time. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Brother Anthony, you made the point about the correlation between the economies, the political machinery, the the realities of Britain, not the realities of Brazil, and U.S., particularly the notation of one of the last two countries to so-called abandon uh, child slavery. But yet, there are two of the the countries that have the highest um, degree of difficulties that are being inflicted on African people in terms of police brutality and desires. Uh, what more can you make of that kind of relationship? I find that to be a relationship that you probably would see through many countries when it comes to U.S. imperialism and domination. In, in true. Uh, I, 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 I think that observation is correct. But I think the uh, the oppression that we've been subject to in these two particular settler colonies and uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere is reflective of the fact that one of the legacies of chattel slavery has been uh, less access to adequate health care and uh, working in more dangerous occupations and having less resources in which to improve our living conditions. Okay. Anyone else would like to respond or make their input to this particular phenomenon? All right. Brother Moses. Yes, just I just wanted to take in, a general take in your community in that region. What is what is really the political response as we deal with the people on the ground? What what are they saying? How are they dealing with these decisions and issues that are being thrown out in terms of how they dealing with the virus? In terms out in terms out. They may not get no additional unemployment uh, compensation to, to assist them in turning out just this whole process of 
being limited to two choices of voting, the Democrat and Republican Party again. Just what's, what's going on in terms of the people on the ground? What are they saying and thinking about from your observation, Brother Moses? Well, I think, you know, just like around the world, there are people who have a conscious that we're living in the belly of the beast and that, you know, we, we are the problem in terms of the war machine. As Ivan and I pointed out, the military industrial complex, and definitely the war machine is raging. And so we have a great responsibility in that sense that we should we have to stop the war machine. And um, there's a lot of people who have been discouraged and, uh, in terms of voting and, and, and they don't want to vote for the left of the two evils, and, and uh, there's that, that contingency. But then there are people who are who united around anti-fascism and see the dangers and the, the real threat of fascism that Trump represents, and they're willing to, to use their power, which is what the vote gives them, to, um, to stop him. Um, and, you know, you know, this situation is it takes a lot of the, the mass movement requires a mass of consciousness, and uh, many people, you know, are involved, but not everybody is conscious. And there's a, there's different levels of understanding, and so that leads to needs of support for the system and against the system. You know, this just the nature of the struggle. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. What we're going to do, we're going to do something new, a little new feature we're going to add to our program called a reflection of the past. We're going to play some things that took place in the past, statements of people people may have spoken on, and we want you to listen to it and let's have a little dialogue and see how it ties into today's world. So right now we're going to take a Ten and ten to twelve minute break of looking at a reflection of the past. When we come back, we'd like to have your dialogue, have a dialogue on this. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Let me first say we thank and praise God. Praise God. We have all made it here safely today. I pray to God that your return and my return will be equally as safe. Let me first say, I'll, I'll be mentioning God, but I'm not talking about them isms and osms y'all talking about. And one day you will find out what the real thing is about. It's not about the church. When the Catholic Church elevated the first Polish cardinal to Pope, 1.5 million white folks left the church. I don't know nobody ever left a whole house because somebody came in they didn't like. And you youngsters, if you just remember one thing, stop letting us old folks tell you about how nothing you are 
because we the ones that left you this mess. We put a school together with a bunch of evil old men. When you stop and think about a white woman didn't get the right to vote in America to 1921, and she came over on the boat with that boy. I said, boy, if you treat your mother like that, my mama better stay in the house. <laughs> a white woman in America with a Ph.D. make 87 cents on the dollar compared to a white man. And that don't bother y'all? We give more money to foreign countries that we don't like just because they got minerals in the ground than we give taking care of our own. And they can do that when they keep you messed up with hatred and meanness and racism and prejudice and all of that. And let me first say to you, white folks, I will be saying some things today about white folks, but I can guarantee you, oh, wait, will y'all listen to me? I'll guarantee you I will not be talking about you. See, I advocate it ain't about 800 white folks on the whole planet and the rest of y'all is imposters. See, white is not a color, it's an attitude. And if you don't have trillions of dollars in the bank, you can't have the attitude. Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth make $360 million every 24 hours just interest on her money. Now, them bees, white folks. <laughs> and if ever I took over the country, the first thing I would do is make all you black folks apologize to white folks because you mad at the wrong white folks. The white folks you mad at couldn't help you if they liked you. That white dude asked me, well, how do you know if you real white folks? I said, well, you get up and call the Wall Street, and while you're talking, if you can't determine the stock going to go up or come down, you're not white. Hmm? Somewhere. And let me first say thank you for those of you all that worked to put this together. My job's easy. All I have to do is present a body. So for those of you all to put all the work together to make this happen, we say thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Secondly, let me say to those of you that do the physical part, who we never even see, the mic didn't just walk up here and the chairs didn't just, some human beings did this. And unbeknown to most of us, when we leave here today, someone will come here and straighten this place up. So for those of you that handles that, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. And somewhere, if we learn to say thanks to a whole lot of people that we don't see, you get 20 inches of snow tomorrow. And those folks you see clean it up, they're invisible until tomorrow. Hmm? Invisible. Like I say, my job's easy. Somebody pick me up at the airport, somebody showing up going to take me back. Hmm? 
somewhere it's about the humanity. The humanities. We locked up into athletes and entertainers. When that universal God, not the church, picked you, it leaves no footprints. It don't give a damn about the New York Times or the Washington Post or Time Magazine or NBC or CBS. The real one. There's people in this room now that have done more for the humanities on this planet than 99% of all your athletes and entertainers put together. It wasn't entertainers and athletes or the church that made it possible for you women to sit here in this school next to men in this America. And we're always arguing about something. And let me just stop and apologize to white folks. I was stupid enough to believe that all black folks looked alike to white folks. I, I ain't going to lie. I believed it. Until Obama become president. And I haven't, I haven't had one white person walk up to me and say, uh, excuse me, Mr. President. <laughs> So I know we don't all look alike. <laughs> and secondly, let me say to black educators, I apologize because I've had 50 honorary doctor's degree from black colleges. And in fact, I'm 80 years old. I still had that Negro stuff up here. So I said, it won't be right until I can just get me one honorary degree from a white college. I wrote white colleges where I could never heard from none until last month. Penn State called me. Okay, we'd like to give you an honorary doctor's degree. I said, no, thank you. Somewhere, I have been married 55 years. Oh, wait, I didn't say I was happy? What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> yes, we have left a mess, because in this country, white folks and black folks lie to you, because they don't want to lose a job, but they believe in God. Hmm? We give you stuff that we know is corrupt. We, we create schools to teach you how to make a living, and the universal God said you better learn how to live. Hmm? And if you didn't have a good example, you got one now. Steve Jobs died. He had $300 billion in his personal private checking account and couldn't make 58 years old. I got an old trifling thug cousin and St. Louis, <laughs> drank cheap wine, stayed drunk all the time, he can't read, he can't write, ain't never had a job, but he 101, Steve, <laughs> Steve should have followed him. <laughs> Steve dead, 300 billion in his personal, I called my cousin this morning just to make sure he was still kicking. 
So we left you young folks a big mess. That you either change it or have fun and have fun quick because recess is just about over. And the lies go so deep. If my mother was alive today and walked into this room, you think God just spit her out. That's how precious and beautiful and spiritual she looks. But if you try to convince my mother that Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian, she'd stomp you to death. Because her ignorance didn't permit her to know that Christianity never started until 100 years after Jesus was dead. She didn't know that. She didn't know they killed his brother James the same way they killed him. Somewhere. King James, she didn't know King James was king of England. She didn't know King James was such a weird, strange Homosexual. He hated women so bad he killed his mama. And his lover was Lord Buckingham, who Buckingham Palace is named after. But King James didn't lie. He didn't say this is God's version, Jesus' version, Christianity's version, Buddha's version. He said, This is my version. And so if your brother wrote a book on his version on how to play basketball, I got a God intelligence to tell me. Check him out first, then I'll understand his version. See, if your brother got no legs, his version going to be different. Hmm? Hmm? Somewhere. Hmm? Somewhere. And I don't know when you women going to understand who you are. Understand the power you are. It wouldn't be none of us on this planet if it wasn't for women, and yet they got you believing you came second. Huh? That old filthy story of Adam and Eve. Are y'all crazy? Adam was here by himself. Y'all know the story. Adam. And then he, he said one day to God, God, I am lonely. And when God didn't say, nigga, how can you be lonely when ain't nobody here but you? He was here, nobody else. How he no lonely? But if you follow the story, here come Eve. They had two sons. Y'all know the story? Cain and Abel. One son killed the other one. So let's do this right. There's Adam and Eve, put, put two fingers up. Then Cain and Abel, that's four. Then one boy killed the other one. Take one down, that's three. Then he went out and begot him a wife. <laughs> now you see where the word MF come from, huh? <laughs> well, don't look so strange. You count it. <laughs> it's three people. Him, dad, and mom. Somewhere. You Christians, y'all trip. I know because I'm one. You Christians are a trip. 
I shall not kill except war. Now, it didn't say that. But somebody told you, you go kill people you don't know, never met. But it's okay because some rich, powerful human being said, here's what you, and you don't question nothing. Somewhere. Somewhere. I can go all over the world, been all over the world many times, and I can recognize a prostitute. She looked like a hoe. She act like a hoe. She believed like a hoe. No, the question is, if I can recognize a whore without her telling me, how come if you don't tell me you're a Christian, I don't know you one? I go to jail and speak all over the world. Strange thing. How come there are no atheists on death row? What is it about people that don't believe and God don't kill folks. But you go to war. Saying prayers, you can come back. Let me kill them and get it over with. Somewhere. You don't care nothing about poor folks. Even poor folks don't care nothing about poor folks. Oh, wait, it always wants something free. I have a business, I have a company. I can take five hoes today all over the world, and as long as I call them hoes my secretary, it's a tax write-off. Huh? All these big restaurants that you go to and you can't afford to go. Manhattan, all over the world. Those are tax write-offs. Huh? First class, you get on a damn plane. I came back from London, France the other day. My first class ticket cost $10,000 more than the economy, and most of us wouldn't be up there if we couldn't write that off on our income tax. You love to pick on POFA, but you're not going to mess with people with power because they'll hurt you. Fear. Scared of everything. Sitting here in this college going to take a damn test, and you're scared. Do you know fear and God don't occupy the same space? A damn book that's dead. You can create another human being. That's the power you have. That book can't produce one page. And you scared and nervous? I know you. I went to college. I was there. People were scared. You're so cool. Cool. Well, I mean, what you can do? Can't do nothing but flunk me. And you smart people. I don't understand you. I walked in the class my first day in college, took the test, read it. I see, I didn't know anything, so I signed it and left. You dumb folk, you know those dumb folk when they take a test, they put the pencil in their mouth like they thinking. Holy head. You dumb. Just sign the paper and leave. And you smart people, you really a trip. Hell ain't talking. She was the smartest person I ever met in school. I sit there two minutes and left, waiting on her just to wave at her. She come out two and a half hours later. She must really be dumb. 
I said, how you do? She's nervous. Do? I, 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 I don't know. I got to wait till the grade. They posted grades three days later. She made straight A. You know how dumb you got to be to make straight A and don't know it? Somewhere. Fear and God do not occupy the same space. We welcome back to Africa on the Moon. You listen to commentary or satire. Dick Gregory um, doing some of his days of lecturing on his lecture series. We just doing a reflection of down the memory lane, sort of reflection of the past, and we were just wondering, based on some of the things he articulated during this particular um, presentation, how do they continue to play in today's world? So, panelists, I really would like to hear your critique. Some of the things that he raised you thought was important and that people need to have a better grasp of it. Was he making sense in many, many of the things he was raising? Um, Brother Anthony, start off with you. Sure. He was making sense. sense. And uh, he talked uh, a lot about, about, uh, you know, the uh, uh, class struggle struggle that exists among human beings and how how religion religion or spiritual spiritual beliefs beliefs are manipulated manipulated in order to control people. And I think that persists to this day. Brother Haki, your take on it? Anything of interest? Share your memory in terms of some of the points you're making that is still going on today as relates to the mindset and behavior of the people? Yeah, I, I think when he, when, he, when he talked about, you know, fear and God occupying the same space, I think it has some legitimacy there. Uh, one of the things that we talk about um, uh, religion, Religion. Or, spirituality. or spirituality. The whole notion is the what you do is what if assuming that it's co- that is it is positive and honest. You do it simply because it's in keeping with what the Creator would want you to do. So in doing that, understanding that there are those people who, in in opposition to God's will, are going to not like what you're doing simply because what you're doing affects God's will. But to the extent that what they think impacts on someone who's spiritual or religious, uh, shouldn't exist. In fact, so it's one of those ironies in which you ask yourself, so why is it that, you know, when you, you think about terms of trying to bring about a just world, you certainly would expect Christians to be out in the forefront or people who are religious or spiritual to be in the forefront. But that doesn't always exist. So this question in terms of seriousness when it comes to religion and spirituality becomes a, becomes a, 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 a very, um, very difficult question to gauge sometimes. I suspect that, in fact, that people on one hand talk about the fact that uh, they're, they're religious or spiritual, but in reality, they're more guided by material gain. And so there was so, there was, so it's one of those ironies in which I think that at some point, you know, people who are in, who are, who are in a religious or spiritual world have begun to question and ask themselves, you know, for one who subscribes to the to a deity, one who subscribes to um, the one is a creation or, or justice and humanity. Uh, it's your obligations, your moral obligation, not political obligation, but your moral obligation to be in the forefront in terms of fighting for that kind of world in which you think that deity want to come into existence. The mere fact that you don't do that raises some suspicion as to whether or not you're really spiritual or religious. 
And, of course, one of the things is when you talk about, for instance, if you talk about keeping a job and it comes to in terms of doing what's wrong, if what, you're, if what you're doing means killing, you know, millions of people, but you get a paycheck, and if you persist on doing that, then clearly that is unchristian. Now, it seems to me, or, or unspiritual. So if, in fact, if you're a spiritual religion and you got a job that's essentially, you know, killing millions of people, then you leave, you leave that job simply because it's not in keeping in terms of, in terms of, um, uh, the deities, uh, uh, what the deity would expect from you. So I, so I suspect, you know, that uh, this, this notion in terms of, in terms of people when they say I'm spiritual, I'm religious, you know, for, for a large extent, a lot of times it's a facade because the most scary people, uh, and, I, and I, I feel I understand why, but the most scary people that you know a lot of times are in the church or religious or spiritual. Those are the people that should be up front. They should be up front. What is the fear? So if the, uh, so if some, um, some, um, uh, um, malcontent. So some some individual you know who wants to maintain control of the world kills you simply because what you're saying is in opposition to their empowerment. So what? You go into you go into your deity. You go into your creator. So so what is the fear? So why would the, so why would these people hold fear over you if in fact you believe in religious religious religiosity or spirituality? So to me it's a very it's a very fascinating paradox in terms of people who say they're spiritual and religious. In their practice, and so this kind of hypocrisy, I, I think, is fine extraordinary. The second thing I think uh, also that uh, he talks about, he talks about the fact that you, you know, that the, we, the older people, we're leaving behind a world for our children, in which we you know, we, to a large extent, we have failed our children, and we have. Uh, you know, I, I think in the sixties we come up and we we have all these movements, and we and we we you know, we, we, we brought into to to existence, you know, a lot of positive things in terms of what we felt was in benefit. To humanity and our children specifically. Well, you know, once we we thought we had achieved the op, the optimum, we we quit. In other words, we became complacent because we got our car, we got our big house, and we got a few a little money in the bank, and so therefore, as far as we were concerned, we were fine. And the reality is that what happened was that the people in positions of power created the perception by using the media to make us think that in fact our situation had um, um, qualitatively improved. The reality was something quite different. It hadn't improved the level of what we thought it was. But it's the power of the media to make us think that, in fact, our situation improved considerably. So they take one individual, highlight the individual, make it look like this is something that's, that's happening throughout the African community, that, in fact, discrimination is no longer an issue. African people are doing well. You can relax. You know, don't, don't worry about it. Everything is okay. And we fell for the okey-doke. So the consequence, we, uh, we, 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 you know, I mean, look at, we look at terms of global warming. We look at it in terms of the blocked opportunity that exists in society. We look at the systematic discrimination. We look at it in terms of uh, a system which rudimentally, I mean, across the board, you know, kill off African people, you know, uh, you know and, and there's no cry, you know, from large sections of the African community. So how do you, how do you justify that to young people? Come, you know, young people, you look at your children, how do you justify that? Not putting in place institutions or systems to make sure to protect the well-being of children. How do you how do you reconcile the two? So so this inaction uh, is in fact a part and parcel a reflection of the kind of uh, corruption that exists in the minds of a lot of our people. And getting and getting our people to acknowledge the corruption in the mind is a very difficult thing. It's much easier to pretend like you know that that that, that your mind is not corrupted. That in fact that you're free thinking. That you're all about those things that tend to empower, those things that are in the best interest of humanity, certainly those things that empower children. 
But yet you move, you won't do anything at all in terms of anything concretely that's going to move, that's going to empower the children to protect them, A, emotionally, B, protect them um, 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 in terms of their health, and certainly enough to protect them financially. In order to do those things, it's going to take real organization. That's the only way you can do these things in fruition. And so specifically, when you know, I talk about you know, financially empowering, making sure kids get what they need, if that means sharing to make sure kids get what they need in the community, then that's precisely what we should do. Then we should share. But it takes a high-level political understanding in terms of to get to the point where you're willing to share to make sure all the children, even if they're not your own biological children, get what they need in terms of excelling in society. Also, when we look at it in terms of the emotional damage the system does to our children, why is it that we, we fail to understand that, you know, it's, very, it's, very, it's quite simple. We talk about socialization. If kids grow up in an environment which tells them that the color of your skin defines you who you are as a human being, that it defines your intelligence level, it defines you, your, 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 you as a person, it defines you in terms of your ability. If we allow our children to grow up to believe that, then the problem is on us, not the oppressor. So we have to ask ourselves, why do I step by and see these kind of things happen to our children? I do nothing to counter the influence, the negative influence, the impact on our children. Why is it that we can't build institutions to make sure our children uh, learn how to play instruments at an early age? And at the same time, teach them the importance in terms of his African history and mathematics. Who's stopping us from doing that? It ain't, the, it ain't the white man. It ain't the white man stopping us from doing that. That is us stopping us from doing that. So why don't we have a discussion? So to a lot of he's absolutely correct. We are failing our children. And there's no excuse for it. The reality is that we are failing our children. We have historically failed our children, and we continue to fail our children. And it's up to us to come to the realization that things have to change. But first and foremost, we have to begin to look at ourselves objectively for who we are and what we are in terms of the kind of stands, kind of positions that we take. Brother Moses? Your critique of Brother Gregory presentation of well, how he views the world. Well, let me let me start off by first saying um I'm I'm not a comedian uh, generally speaking generally speaking um I I try to say what I mean and mean what I say and I try to devote myself to the struggle as much as possible try to politicize people as much as possible, try to bring something to the table that's going to enlighten the situation, bring bring light to the situation so we can see where we're going and avoid the pitfalls of, of the struggle. And um, But anyway, having said that, I mean, I, I noticed that um, wise people still seek him, uh, meaning God. And um, I noticed that he started off um, giving homage to uh, God. Um, anyway, nevertheless, I just say uh, uh, it's not what you do. It's not how long you live. It's what you do with your life. That's why Dr. Martin Luther King laid it out plainly. Longevity has its place. Um, so, you know, it's, you have to devote your life to something. You have to stand for something or you'll fall for everything, as he said. And, um, I just think um, it's great that there is a message in in, in the comedy or in the, in the comedy, satire or whatever. Uh, there is a message there, and uh, 
and we are struggling for justice, and that's the name of the game. When all the dust clears, we come back to material things that we're seeking uh, for the people, and, and we're struggling for justice. And, uh, and even our shopping there today, you know, we're, there's a lot of levels and different people in the struggle, but we're struggling for the same thing, and we have to maintain unity. Um, um, anyway, so... It's just good to be alive. It's good to be able to be heard. It's good to have the opportunity to speak. And uh, I just thank you uh, once again for allowing me to be on the show. Okay, brothers and panelists, you raised some really interesting points. I'd like to get each one of y'all response. He made the point of in, in this world, we often teach people how to make a living. Well, we've spent most of our life trying to figure out how to make a living, but not how to live. Given what's going on today with this virus and the conditions that billions of people are finding themselves in, do you find this to be very um, compatible and similar in terms of the contradictions? The issue of how to make a living versus how to live. Many people don't even, for some reason, they don't or are not using their common sense when it comes to some basic things in terms of how to stay or try to stay healthy. So just the question, how to make a living versus how to live. Y'all respond to that to that position. I think that's true. I think that's true. Unfortunately, um, you know, we, we you spend know, we a lot of our time making a living. But uh but but it's true, we don't uh we, we don't know how to live because of um you know the subsistence mentality we inherited from chattel slavery. And uh and also we follow the same patterns that our um, ancestors followed incorrectly. And the thing about it though and um we know a lot of us don't recognize our responsibility that if we know more we should we, we, we should do more. It obligates us to uh you know, to make a better life by children. You know, as our ancestors tried to make a better life to get us to this point. Okay, your response to that? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, there's no question. Uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, to make a living in the context of capital society, one of the things that we're, we're conditioned to believe that we have to have a certain amount of, uh, a certain amount of material comfort in terms of, you know, being a legitimate, uh, 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 legitimate person. And to the extent that we're internalized as nonsense, uh, it means that uh, we... We really believe that, really in fact, that, that if we don't have, we don't have X, A, B, and C, then in fact that, that, that we somehow failed. And, of course, when you start talking about, excuse me, living, 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 excuse me, well, making to live, it's clear, that's very, very clear in terms of what's going on. Um, uh, but more importantly, I think if we begin to understand how to live, I think, uh, you know, uh, we can alleviate a lot of the stress that we impose upon ourselves simply because of the uh, sort of the dictates you know, of the Western society in terms, you know. One of the things, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by, when I, you, know, you know, when I'm in, in, like, places in indigenous societies, where, like, and uh, the Caribbean or Central South America, Africa, in terms of, you know, we look at the level of poverty that people are, are inflicted with. But they still have a certain kind of vitality 
things in terms of in terms of you know how they interact on in terms of their their relationship to life, and it's so different, and it's so much more it's much more liberating, and so they're free, so they they understand that you don't have to have three squares a day in terms of in terms of being in terms of living, you don't have to uh, have large sums of money in your bank account in terms of being a viable human being, uh, you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to engage in these social these social games in terms of meeting in terms of meeting people that you put on these fronts in terms of trying to impress folks. So I think that you know uh, it's important that we really understand you know how how to live and stop focusing on making a living. And, you know, but I think that's easier said than done because we're talking about conditioning. I think one of the things if we did focus on how to live, I think one of the things we have to do is we have to understand that fundamentally it shuts in terms of health. A lot of things that we do currently are not in our long-term interest in terms of health. We do them simply because we're told to do them. We see status as a sign of we see uh, uh, eating, you know, meat as a sign of status. I remember as a young man growing up, one of the things the status symbol was a steak. You know, so you know if you're not eating rare by steak, a 12 ounce or 13 ounce or 16 ounce, but then you're not living. And so therefore, so everybody who wanted to to indicate that somehow they were making it, they had to go to this restaurant and purchase a steak. And even and in reality, the irony is that when you purchase, when you consume all that meat, there's devastation witness upon your body in terms of the ill effects in terms of consuming all that meat. You know, something that we don't think about simply because we're trying to make, because that's part of making a living. So I think it is important that we learn, learn how to live. Uh, I think that's very, very important. And in learning how to live, that was sort of dictated in terms of how we eat, in terms of the usefulness of food and certain kind of foods we can eat. We, as a matter of fact, in terms of a, 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 a balanced diet, we can do without ex- excesses of meat. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, more fruits, vegetables, and and, and, that's, you know, and and beans, those kind of things are better suited in terms of your health than you know just consuming meat, you know, as a status symbol. So I think he's absolutely correct. I mean, that's, but that is, of course, it's easier said than done, and you know, and, and getting folks to understand that is a very difficult thing because one of the things that people do, uh, unfortunately, to continue to judge people from based upon how to make a living. So the first thing you do when you, when you, when you meet someone is always, what do you do? You know, in other words, how much money do you make? You know, uh, you know, uh, are you making a living? <laughs> you know, and not to say that money on some level is important, but it's not a, it's a it's not an end all in terms of not, uh, in terms of you know uh, one's existence. And so, if you got an adequate amount of money, to do what you need to do in terms of paying your mortgage or paying your rent. Uh, <clears throat> and if you can balance that with, you know, eating eating right without the excesses, then I think uh, it's probably the best way to go. But, again, that's a question in terms of conditioning, and that's one that I think people have to, have to struggle with. You would say, Brother Moses? Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, what, did you, what did you say? What did you say? I was asking, what is your response to uh, Dick Gregory's critique of the society and the world that it often teaches us how to make a living, but yet it doesn't teach us how to live? What do you think about that paradox? Well, that's a philosophical question. You know, that's that's what is the meaning of life? What is life all about? And we all just study philosophy. Uh, I learned a long time ago you have to study philosophy. Uh, I, you know, I study yoga and you know, practicing different things. I'm different. Um, you have to you have to know what's going on in the world if you're really going to deal with the world. And I, 
confiding them in. And so, you know, uh, um, as, as Shaco Perez said, the risk is sounding ridiculous. A true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love for the people. And that's not just an abstract idea about people, but that means real people. And so um, I've learned, you know, I can't, as Jimmy Cliff said, I can't say what life's going to show me, but I know what I've seen. And so, you know, I try to just convey and communicate and uh, bring something to the table. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Pandas, he made the point that most of the time, many people over here go off the wall, and we kill people that we don't know, and we never said anything or done anything to us. Why we continue to buy into that, into that philosophy or that attitude of killing people that we don't know? Go ahead, brother. I think that's a part of our conditioning. We're taught We're to be taught loyal. To be loyal. To the, U.S. Government. to the U.S. government. You know, we're taught that from you know, the days of preschool all the way through college. And I think that's why people willingly go to war against people they don't know, against people who never did anything to them. But we will not, uh, you know, engage in that struggle against people that did something to us. Like a lot of the like troops that returned from war, and 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 faced political reprisals and violence from the uh, from, the, from the, people the people that they were supposed to be defending. Yeah. Well, I think personal question is, is, is to a large extent is has to do with conditioning. But I think also there's another important component I think in terms of why we're so willing to go off and kill people we don't know. I think part of it's the whole so-called the, the human the humanization process that takes place with respect to capitalism in terms of beating people down, in terms of defining people, in terms of based upon what they have. So this notion in terms of proving of proving to yourself that you are somebody is constantly in limbo. Because your your persona, your person is constantly in in, 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 in being violated by a system which says that in fact that you're nobody, and so this this yearning, this desire in terms of being somebody so strong, uh, you know, and and human being, that if you give them an opportunity to demonstrate your mastery over someone else to affirm, in fact, you are somebody, then you're more willing to take take that take that take that take, that, take to participate in that in that killing. So I think that to a large extent, to the extent that um, People are willing to do that. I think. I think it's a question in terms of not just conditioning, but I think also a question in terms of the in terms of self-image, in terms of how they see themselves. Because if you can go over to say, for instance, if you go to Vietnam and you kill some folks, or you go to China and you kill some Chinese, and you can say, well, you know, listen, you know, I'm, you know, because I killed these people, you know, I'm somebody, you know, uh, you know, and. Why am I somebody because of systems? I'm somebody because I went over there and engaged in war, killing off these people and who are, you know, uh, you know, who are less than me. So I think that to some extent we have to begin to understand the whole question in terms of self-image, in terms of how capitalism negatively impacts on the way we think about ourselves. So the extent that we can do that once we begin to understand who we are, 
then we we're less vulnerable in terms of this notion of this compunction to want to go there and kill other people to prove that we are in fact somebody. So I think that's part of it. I've also thought that the class question too, Brother Africa. I think that for wealthy people who join the military, they have a slightly different motivation in terms of not just in terms of proving that they're better than someone else, uh, but I think the motivation is more in terms of well, you know, particularly you know, as someone you know, from, you know, who represents the ruling class. I mean, your obligation, at least in your mind, is the position that uh, you know that you that you're bound, you're bound, you know, to maintain order or to maintain control of the world. And to do maintain order and control of the world, you have to kill people who don't look like you. Certainly, people who don't agree with you. So, so I so I think those kind of things are, are sort of instrumental in terms of desire, in terms of just going out and kill people. You know, and one of the things that that um, psychologists say that you know we, that the human beings have this tribal instinct. One thing that bothers me with that analysis is that when you look at the terms of when, when, when Westerners first went to Africa, and one of the things that, in fact, if the tribal instinct was, in fact, uh, at play, then you would think that the Africans would have saw these, these white people and said, whoa, they're different. They're not about tribe. Let's kill them. That didn't happen. So this notion that, in fact, that we're tribal and that we're prone to violence, I think, is, is, a, is a red herring. I think it's simply a, is, is a means to, 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 to undercut a deeper, deeper observation in terms of what motivates human beings. So I think that uh, the notion in terms of conditioning, self-esteem is a big part in terms of why people are the thing to do this. I like, like uh, um, uh, former, you know, former um, Muhammad Ali uh, um, when he said, "I'm not going to Vietnam. The Vietnamese never called me, called me the N-word." So we, but I think increasingly young people begin to understand that. So increasingly, I think uh, a lot of young people, to the generation to Z. A lot of those young people are not going into the military. They're saying, listen, I see the game. You know, I'm not going to kill these people, you know, simply because you tell me to kill them. I understand, you know, that my problem here lies in the North America and not across the sea. And so I think, for example, the consciousness among people is raised, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it's sufficient to say that that consciousness is raised in part because I think of the self-esteem and the understanding that a lot of things that have been taught in society uh, really have no real value. So I, I, that's my view on that. That's my view on that. And you take Brother Moses. Okay. Okay. We're talking about a people who will go all around the world to kill people and they don't know them and have done anything to them. All right. Why yeah. continue yeah. this tutelage? I'm. People. People have to have a reason to kill, and it's, it's an ideological, and philosophical, and a question of consciousness, political consciousness, and content. Um, 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 your regarding your ethics or morality. Brother Moses, can I? Are you speaking through a speakerphone? Got the phone on the speakerphone? Yes. Yes. Can you take off speakerphone? I think. You have less background noise and stuff. Try that for a second, oh. please. Oh. Okay. Okay. Let me see. All right. All right. All right. Go ahead. Yes, better. Folks. Go ahead. Talk. Um, I think you know it's, think, it's a philosophical problem of people's view of life and how they how they value life. You know, um, your values, your internal values mean so much. Um. 
not to get off the subject, but I feel like it's important and politically and practically as, as, a, as something, the everyday thing. Uh, I don't understand the value structure in a woman that will have a baby by someone she's not married to. I don't know. I don't understand that value structure. Uh, but uh, but that's just me, and 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 uh, I just see a lot of a lot of uh, irresponsible male figures running around impregnating the world or whatever. Uh, and I and that you know it's a problem in my mind. But nevertheless, to get back to the subject, um, um, we. I can't, I can't get back to the subject at this point. Let me stop right here. Thank you. Hey, last that least, I've many contradictions you brought up. But, panelists, let's see this one more of the class structure or the systems that we function under. What do you make of the position that you're taking of the Queen of England? Right now, I guess it's, they call her Elizabeth. She make more more money on an hourly basis than million people make on, on, on a yearly basis. She end up her money by the seconds. How can this be? Why we continue to allow these kind of conditions to exist for certain individuals? Brother Haki? Yeah, well, I, I think to a, to a, to a large extent, I think it's, I think it's, that is definitely a, a problem of, of social conditioning. I think to the extent that we sort of internalize this, this notion in the terms of, you know, um, uh, being successful, I think to the extent we internalize that, we can almost just find anything under the sun. I think the mere fact that we don't understand economic systems, I mean, sort of adds to the confusion. And so you have a situation where the queen is, you know, making, you know, I mean, you have this I mean, exponential have impact in terms of earnings. I mean, when she's making, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, literally you know, thousands of dollars per minute, uh, just on interest. I mean, clearly, when you look in terms of how the system is, how the system functions, they clearly is, is, is screwed against, skewed against the, uh, the the aspirations and wishes of, of working people. But unless working people fundamentally understand the reality, they tend to see Queen Elizabeth as somehow uh, someone to be emulated, someone that one day they hope they could be. Of course, we understand in context in terms of how capitalism function, it's just a dream. Uh, this notion that in fact that one day you can be, uh, you know, uh, as, as wealthy and as powerful, it's a pipe dream. By and large, that simply doesn't happen. I mean, even for individuals who hit hit, hit lotto and happen to get uh, two or three hundred, two or three, let's say they get $150 million off the payoff. Uh, if they're not served in terms of investments, in terms of watching their accountants and watching their uh, their uh, lawyers, if they're not savvy, that money won't last very, very long. So this notion in terms of simply having the money in terms of is, is a cure in terms of, uh, you know, uh, from, from, from life's problems, it's, 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 it's a misnomer. So I, I think that uh, to the extent that we have to understand the way economics flows, you know, in, in, in a capitalist context, we begin to understand in terms of, you know, in terms of just this value system that exists in capitalism which continues to say, that, uh, you know, uh, people who are rich are rich simply because they deserve it. And if you're poor, you're poor because you deserve it. And not understanding the systematic uh, uh, underlying, underlying that exists in terms of uh, sets the, uh, sets the uh, tone in terms of how capitalism plays out. So clearly, you know, I think it's a, it's a function of uh, a function of conditioning. It's a function of conditioning, uh, which is true. 
and it's also a consequence of the of the development of the British Empire. Uh, the British royal family amassed their wealth from the exploitation of Africa, Asia, and the Western Hemisphere. And that and the wealth that Elizabeth II has is inherited. She did not earn that all by herself. And that's something that people don't understand. A lot of the a, a lot of the wealth that the bourgeoisie has now is inherited wealth. They inherited it from um, uh, Leslie from uh, exploiting other people worldwide. And uh, they're the major reason why there's so many poor people in the world, because the, uh, because of the rapacious appetite of the rich. Okay, after let me start right now and take this call. I think you've been real patient. You may have something to say. We can go to call. We can call on your last two numbers. Your last two numbers are four two nine zero. Four two nine zero. Welcome to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world and community? Yes, call Hey, how you? Hey, how you doing? This is how you doing? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you, call Hey, how you doing? Any I'm questions, doing fine. comments, based on what you have heard, you'd like to make today, call Yes. I wanted to respond to the earlier question. Uh, concerning. Concerning. People going abroad to kill people that they don't know. What we have to realize, in my research, I'm going, I'm trying to go back thousands of years back. And during colonialism, these, uh, such as America and Europe, have done everything in their power to control the narrative. So when they took power in these countries, Africa, America, they would destroy the systems and put in their system, of course, and this would be indoctrination, brainwashing, and mentally enslaving the people. And I find that this goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. And today they're controlling the narrative in the school system, the school system. Which, which is lies. Their history is not, history is not uh, true. We, uh, should we should be learning world history. We should be learning about China, Japan, Japan Africa, Africa, the entire world. The entire world. As they colonize, they, they've done everything in their power to control the curriculum, of school systems, from head start to college. The curriculum, the curriculum in theology school, in theology which the Bible was written by the Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church and priests. Many pastors who claim they've been called to, uh, what is the word, preach or be a pastor, does not realize that this information that's been constructed by our colonizers consists of lies, myths, mysticism, 
and allegories. So they have indoctrinated and brainwashed the entire world. This is the reason why we have racism and hate that's embedded into uh, 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 Caucasians so bad today. They have been lied to themselves for thousands of years. And so when these soldiers go to war, they know absolutely nothing about world history, sociology, political science, philosophy, mathematics, and many are very poor on geography. They have been conditioned to simply obey the command of their commanding officer. So this means that today we have millions and billions of soldiers and cops who are very ignorant of political science, sociology, history, and this has uh, a philosophy. It is the main reason why they're behaving the way that they are and in, in attacking people. We got a mess that goes back thousands of years. So Africa and the African masses in Africa and the diaspora have to do everything within our power to change the narrative from, from the African continent to the diaspora. We must write for Africa and the African people. So to get... To make a long story short, the enemy, the European colonialism, capitalism, imperialism, neo-colonialism, settler colonialism, and the Zionist systems, ideologies, institutions, empires, and governments are controlling the narrative on the entire world. They're, they're, they're taking history and alter, uh, they're altering the history, falsifying history, and basically uh, causing us to, uh, or using what we call a divide and conquer strategy on multiple different levels, on a racial level, class level. Uh, so we have a world full of ignorant people walking around with guns. And the soldiers and cops don't realize that they are being used as pawns in the game when they don't know the truth about world history. Such as socialist countries such as Cuba teaches the people the truth about history. So when they go to war, they know the truth. Capitalist soldiers are not allowed to discuss politics uh, politics, uh, in history, and that's the way that they would be the perfect uh, robot and zombie in the war machine. They are also paid with what I call financial bribes. This is why they get a military income. This is, this is to keep them loyal or to justify their reasons for being in the military. I don't blame them, but they're simply victims of years and years and generations of indoctrination, uh, brainwashing, and mental slavery. 
So uh, we as an African people have to do everything in our power to change the narrative swiftly and quickly. And I think that uh, we're going to win because we have the truth on our side. If you just do a Google and just think, I mean, I want you to think. And when you when you can pick any kind of topic, you can pick a you can pick a revolutionary. They got eighteen, nineteen year old Caucasians writing the story about Malcolm X. She ain't revolutionary. She ain't in the movement. But the system has lied for so many years. They have tried to control the narrative of the movement, of our revolutionary leaders, uh, civil rights and human rights leaders. So we have to go on the Internet and YouTube and observe these videos and see what they're doing. And, and a lot of them are coming out with new videos now because, you know, they see that these discussions, types of discussions are being discussed all over the world, so they're going in to put their spin on it. So I'm going to leave it at that, uh, uh, that, that uh, these, these guys are seriously indoctrinated, uh, brainwashed, mentally enslaved, and this is years of uh, enslavement. So, so one other thing, this puts the ruling class in the position to easily manipulate us against each other. And then they give the working class white. 60 and $70,000 salaries, $100,000 salaries. By the masses, we got probably close to 28 million or 50% of the Africans in this country is unemployed. So they're going to use all these different types of divide and conquer methods to even make it appear to them it's a racial, it's a, uh, it's a racial issue and could, could create a race war, and they would be willing to do that to protect to protect themselves, the, the ruling ruling one uh, percent ruling class elite. But anyway, I'm going to stop there. But we need to do everything we can to be on all kind of talk programs. We need to be writing. They're narrating our beautiful animals and Africans. They're making themselves look heroic to make it up look cowardly. Here it is. They're on our African continent. There should be an African narrate no stories about our elephants, our animals, you name it. But anyway, I'm going to stop there. Hey, Colin, thank you for your contribution to today's program. What we're going to do, we're going to pause. Can I jump in here for a second? Okay, quicker, please. Yeah, um, yeah, let me um, say that, um, that, um, that great Pan-Africanist W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk, and I, I think and I, each generation, generation should, should read that should book, read especially that if you're African. Um, um, but um, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, we're going to pause for this Representative Culture Break, and when we come back, we got each one of our panelists and participants to make a closing statement for two minutes or less. And what we're going to do, we're going to send this program to a part two. There are some interesting issues we want to discuss. We didn't get to today. We're going to send this to part two next week as we relate to methods of eliminating. They wouldn't know. So we're going to take this break. When we come back, we're going to make our closing 
closing remarks. This is Africa on the move.
that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Life is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome back to Africa on the Move, and we are making our final closing statement. We got each individual, if possible, be limited to 90 seconds. So we start off with our participant, Brother David. Welcome to closing remarks for tonight.
My closing remarks will be the way to defeat colonialism, European colonialism, and white supremacy is by living, learning, studying, practicing, practicing. And teaching, and teaching your Native American Native and African history, African and, history culture and culture 365, 365 days, a year. days a year. Make sure, Make sure that Mother Africa, that Mother Africa and our Native American, our Native people, American people write and narrate, and narrate their, own their own history and culture. History and culture. Act as though the European colonizers don't even exist. I haven't watched this TV in 12 years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother David, for your contributions to today's program. We next will move to Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for the night, Brother Moses. Well, I want to give greetings to everyone within the socialist camp, the communist camp, and the democratic, the true levels of democracy, which, which the socialists and the communists are levels of democracy themselves, because that's, that's just the nature of the beast. And so, so you know, we have to defend the rights of the people at, in, at, at all times. They say injustice anywhere is the threat to justice everywhere. And, you know, we, you know, I don't know. I just think if you can master the little things in life, the bigger things, well, you'll have time to study. you have time to give, give knowledge of the bigger things in life. Uh, but if you fail the first test in life, uh, as Dr. Martin Shadeen talking about failing matriculation and all that. Uh, but anyway, I just think it's, it's great to be alive. It's great to be in the struggle. And I just hope that the... 99% will conquer, will conquer and, uh, and uh, we will prevail eventually. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contributions to today's program. We next will move to Brother Haki. Yeah, there are yeah, approximately, uh, approximately uh, close to 12,000 uh, registered lobbyists uh, in Washington, D.C. Of that number, a very minuscule number actually represents, represents African interests. Uh, in terms of cost, we're talking typically $100,000 per month, uh, depending on the cost. Now, the reality is that you know, we're not quite organized in terms of being able to to uh, employ, you know, lobbyists, you know, full-time, you know, 365 days a year. So the question becomes, if, you know, if we're going to go that political route and if we can't employ lobbyists in terms of advocating for our, our, what we want, then the only recourse, the only thing we can do is to create a, a situation in which uh, we have, you know, authentic leadership in the community in which we can vote into power in terms of advocating for those things that we deem necessary in terms of lessening uh, uh, subjugation in the, in the society. So clearly we have some work to be done in terms of politically well, how we're going to move. And uh, if we don't understand the systems in terms of as they currently exist, then we're in real, real trouble. So I encourage people to definitely get about the business of, you know, uh, unraveling the matrix. And without unraveling the matrix, well, resolving the situation becomes that much more uh, difficult. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. 
And thank you, Brother Hockey, for your contributions to today's program. And we now will go to Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Anthony. We got you, Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts, Brother Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. Politically, politically, we must be, we politically, must be educated politically educated and organized. And organized. We must, we uh, must join, uh, an join an organization that is working for people's liberation, and we have and to we teach have each, to each other the truth about our history, about our history and, do and do our own research and study. And to find out more about your organization, where the people can find out. How can they contribute and support the AAPRPGC? Where can they go Certainly. to, brother? Uh, you can, uh, uh, people, uh, people uh, who would like, like to learn more about Pan-Africanism pan and about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party GC can visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call us at 202 246 Okay, Brother Anthony, we'd like to thank you as well for your contributions to today's program. And we'd like to remind everyone that you can listen to Africa on the Move every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This is a place where you can come to speak truth to power and to stand in the seat and take the heat because you are in the position to define it. So on that note, remember... We try to give you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. We want to encourage you to join an organization because by joining an organization or organizations, we understand the organization is the weapon for the press. And on Africa on the move, if we want to continue to go forward, back with never, the key is to get organized. Get organized. So remember next week, same time, same station. We will deal with part two, methods of eliminating. They wouldn't know. So on that time, on that on that particular schedule, on that particular scene, you got a whole week to think about it, come back, and let's share our information so we can grow together. So again, so until next week, we will continue to strive to go forward backwards and ever, and we'll leave you for the next 30 minutes of music of liberation. You have been listening to Brother Africa and Africa is on the move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Needs her freedom, freedom. Palestine. Palestine. 
needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Needs her, Needs her freedom. Palestine. Palestine. Needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine.
show respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free.
I'm 